Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find that on page 810 in the Bibles that we have for you in uh, the back of the pews. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, please take one of those home. That is our gift to you. This morning, we begin a a new series for us uh, entitled, Is It Reasonable to Believe? And each week during this nine-week series, we're going to be asking questions like today's question, is it reasonable to believe that there is only one true religion? So why this series? Well, for at least three reasons. First, no matter how long you have been a follower of Jesus Christ, you need the freedom to ask hard questions of what you believe. Uh, The church should be a safe place uh, for you to raise questions, even to raise doubts. Second, uh, some of you have never yet said yes to Jesus Christ. And uh, we want you to have an opportunity to get honest answers to honest questions. Third, many people in this country and beyond are rethinking what they believe. Many evangelical believers are rethinking what they believe, and uh, it's been called deconstructing their faith. So I want to talk about that for a a moment because we're going to be looking at that this morning. So what is deconstructing your faith? Well, it varies from person to person. Uh, For some people, it means turning away or tearing down. Uh, some of the things that perhaps you grew up with as an evangelical Christian, including, even at times, beliefs that are essential to Orthodox Christianity. So in that sense, deconstructing your faith means to destroy your faith. But there are other approaches to deconstructing your faith that are actually helpful, that are good, that are positive. Uh, In a recent article in the Gospel Coalition entitled, What Would Jesus Deconstruct?, the author gave two positive approaches to deconstructing your faith. If we could put that up on the screen. There we go. All right. The goal of deconstruction should be greater faithfulness to Jesus, not mere self-discovery. So that's first. That's obviously positive. Sometimes what we believe isn't always faithful to the Word of God. So uh, the goal of deconstruction can be to be more faithful. The second, uh, deconstructing can be the road toward reconstructing, building up a more mature, robust faith that grapples honestly with the deepest questions of life. In that same article, they quoted someone who said that Jesus sometimes deconstructs wrong belief or bad beliefs in order to reconstruct good beliefs. So, that's what we're going to see Jesus do in this passage this morning. We're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. All right, let's pray. Father, um, we need your help. Uh, we, we want to believe what is right. We want to believe what is true. And, and today, as we look at a very serious question uh, about the, the one true religion, is it even reasonable to believe that? We pray that you would be our teacher. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to look this morning at the question, is it reasonable to believe that there is only one true religion? And, and as we do so, let me just say uh, that we have to do this with both humility and wisdom. So humility would say that we need to understand as we do this that most world religions, most religions have some elements of God's truth. We need to remember that. We can't just say there's just nothing valuable there at all. Uh, God has uh, infiltrated, if, it, if I can put it like that, uh, most of the world religions, most religions that we know anything about. There are elements of God's truth. So we approach this humbly, recognizing some things that are good, even in false religions. Secondly, though, wisdom, I think, is said really, really well in a statement from a very gentle and very wise seminary professor. This is what he said. It is often said that you should respect other people's beliefs, but that's wrong. What's vital is that you respect other people. It's often said that you should respect other people's beliefs, but that's wrong. What's vital is that you should respect other people. Now, uh, we shouldn't respect all the beliefs of all other religions. I mean, think of the, the Branch Davidians, for instance, of Waco, Texas. You may remember that debacle. Or think about religions that require child sacrifice. Of course, we don't respect those beliefs. But back to our question, is it reasonable to believe that there is only one true religion? Well, um, you may say no. Many, many, many people say no today, uh, which suggests, in fact, that, that uh, most world religions, most big, large religions uh, do speak pretty much to the same thing. They're, uh, they're very, very similar. But if you take the time to, to really study the other religions, and let me just say from the outset, I'm not an expert at this, but I have looked at it at, at several times in my, in my life. If you take any time to study uh, major world religions, you will know that uh, they are not pretty much the same. They are very, very different uh, from each other and certainly from Christianity. So uh, let me just uh, throw out a couple of things for you to understand how different they can be. Uh, so for one thing, they hold completely different views of what God is like. In Hinduism, the divine is impersonal. In Buddhism, there is no God. 
In Islam, Allah is personal, but there is no trinity. In Christianity, there is a personal God who is found in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, so that's one very, very significant difference. Uh, Anyone who says that they're the same has to deal with the fact that they have very, very different ideas of who God is. Uh, Another significant difference is this. If you ask the major world religions, where are we headed after life on this earth, you will also get very, very different answers. In Buddhism, the goal of all existence is nirvana or extinction. That's the end game. In Islam, the goal is a sensual paradise where the blessed will recline, eat, and drink, and the men will be accompanied by women. In Christianity, the goal is to know God and to enjoy Him forever in the company of His redeemed people. Now, there are other significant differences But perhaps the greatest difference is found in the passage that we're looking at this morning. I'm not going to tell you what that is yet. Uh, You'll get that uh, as we look at Jesus deconstructing the faith of the religious leaders of his day. Uh, You'll have to wait till near the end, but you'll get it. Uh, We'll get there. So, all right. What we're going to see in this passage is Jesus deconstructing the legalistic obedience of the scribes and the Pharisees in order to reconstruct it with gospel obedience. And he takes aim at two different aspects of their legalistic approach to obedience. First, they add to God's Word. And second, they actually take away from God's Word. Verse 17 Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, he's being accused. I mean, there's background here that you need to understand. Uh, When he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, uh, you have to recognize that he's being accused of abolishing the Old Testament laws, which was his Bible. He's being accused of setting aside the commandments of God. Now, here's why. Jesus didn't live the life that the Pharisees and scribes thought he should. He contradicted the laws that the religious leaders had added to God's Word. So, for example, uh, in the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus spent too much time with women, disregarding what the rabbis taught. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects study of the law And at the last, will inherit Gehenna, or hell. So, that's a problem for Jesus in the minds of the Pharisees. He also spent time, too much time, with so-called sinners, those who were known uh, to be far from God in the way that they lived. And he even shared meals with them, uh, which meant that he accepted them. He loved them. He considered them friends, even though the rabbi said, keep thee far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked. Uh, All right, so here's what you've got going on in in this passage. 
According to the Pharisees and the scribes, holy men were not, to, were not supposed to dine with sinners or talk much with women, but Jesus did both. So here's what you need to understand. Jesus wasn't setting aside the commands of God. He was setting aside the legalistic commands of the religious leaders. He was setting aside the command setting aside the commands that they had added to God's word. All right, back to verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. These are Jesus' words. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come, in other words, to live them out perfectly. I've come to show you what gospel obedience, real obedience looks like rather than legalistic obedience. All right, now that's kind of introductory. I want to focus Uh, this morning for the rest of our time uh, on this. In verse 19, Jesus calls all of us to live in such a way that does not take away from God's word. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 20, Jesus points out that the scribes and Pharisees, those who had accused him of relaxing God's commands, are actually the ones who were doing that, actually the ones who are taking away from God's word. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what do you think Jesus is getting at here? What is he accusing the religious, the religious leaders of? Well, not only have they added to God's word by writing their own commands, but they have also taken away from God's word by neglecting the motivations of the heart. That's what Jesus is getting at in verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother uh, will be liable to judgment. Now, uh, in other words, uh, the Pharisees said, sure, we agree, murder is wrong, but anger, uh, come on, we all get angry. We, you know, we can't really do anything about that. Can't be sinful. And so what they did, because they, they neglected the heart, they, they neglected the motivations of the heart, they only saw their external actions as necessary to be uh, obedient to God's commands. They made obedience something that was easy, something that they could do in their own strength. I mean, you know, they weren't really tempted typically to murder. They could obey that. But no one can control the motivations of the heart. Replacing anger with love requires dependence on God because only God can give you his love, which is the only kind of love that can displace, that can push out the anger uh, that is in your heart, in my heart. So here's really where I'm going with this. When we reduce Christianity to a list of rules like Uh, don't watch R-rated movies or do go to this kind of school or don't listen to this kind of music. Uh, We can do all of that in our own strength. Uh, And so like every religion other than Christianity, uh, it can then become salvation through moral effort. 
Now that's key. That's, that's really what we're looking at. Uh, that's the answer to what I was trying to say early on. Uh, this is the other huge difference between Christianity and every other religion. Salvation through moral effort never turns out well. And yet that can be the default of our own hearts if we live at times as we're tempted to do like, like the Pharisees. Now, all right, it doesn't turn out well. Let me, let me show you what I mean by um, uh, giving you just a, a bit of a, maybe an excerpt from Tim Keller on, on the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, if you know that story, uh, you will know that uh, Dr. Jekyll one day realizes that uh, it's almost like he has two different people living inside of himself. Uh, he has this good aspect to his nature, but also there's this bad aspect to his nature, which, uh, if, we, if we're being honest, is true of every single one of us here this morning, including the man who stands right here. Uh, we all have good and bad. We are this crazy mixture of, of good and evil. And so, Dr. Jekyll decides to invent this potion uh, to split his nature into the good nature and the bad nature. And the goal of which is that he can then accomplish the good that he wants to do. He feels like his, the bad part of his nature is holding him back from doing the good that he really wants to do. And so, what he does is invent this potion, and, and the idea being he'll take that potion at night, uh, but by the time day comes... Uh, the, the potion that's turned him into Mr. Hyde, the, uh, the bad guy that's let loose at night. By the time the morning comes, he's Dr. Jekyll. Only the good Dr. Jekyll is there uh, to work in, in the daytime. However, uh, what happens when he takes that potion one night is that he realizes he's far more evil, capable of so much more evil than he had ever dreamed of. Uh, he is totally self-centered, cares about nobody else, and, and is willing to hurt, even kill, anyone who gets in the way of what he wants. And so, if I can put it this way, Dr. Jekyll, realizing how bad he can become, uh, he gets religion. He decides in a really solemn uh, moment uh, never to take the potion again and, and then to, to do all the good that he possibly can do to, to make amends, to, to make atonement, to pay for the sins of his evil nature, Mr. Hyde. But here's what happens. He's sitting on a, a bench in, the, uh, in Regent Park one day when um, he's thinking about just how good a person he has become and how much better a person than he is, uh, that he is compared to most of the people that he knows because he's doing all of these really good things. And this is what then happens. If you'll put that slide up for me. I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past and I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. Uh, you know how earnestly in the last months of the last year I labored to relieve suffering. Uh, you know that much was done for others. But as I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, at the very moment of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down. I was once more Edward Hyde. So here's what's happened, and this is what's really bad, and this is kind of the, 
the, the climax of, of the story. Uh, for the first time, Dr. Jekyll, the good Dr. Jekyll, has become the evil uh, Mr. Hyde without taking the potion. In other words, it's happened involuntarily. And, and this is the beginning of the end for him, and he eventually takes his own life. Now, Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote this story uh, here, I, I think is, is incredibly profound. I mean, why would Jekyll become Hyde without the poison? Well, like so many people, Dr. Jekyll knows that he is a sinner. And so he tries desperately to cover his sin with great piles of good works. But his efforts don't shrivel his sin of pride and self-centeredness. Instead, they only make it worse. They lead him to a sense of superiority, to self-righteousness, to pride, to become the kind of person that is always looking down on others who don't measure up. And suddenly, look what happens. Well, Jekyll involuntarily becomes Hyde, not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. Salvation through moral effort does not work. The whole idea that we can do more good works than bad works and hopefully offset our sin in the eyes of God never really uh, works. Uh, we become a worse kind of person. That's the, the point of Robert Louis Stevenson's story that because we become so prideful and cruel and self-righteous. Like the case of Dr. Jekyll, our own efforts can never pay for our sins. And deep down, I think we all know that. Perhaps the best way I can describe the difference between Christianity and other religions, including Phariseeism, which is not Christianity, uh, is something that Michael Green wrote in his book, But Don't All Religions Lead to God? This is what he said. The Hindu doctrine of karma says, you sin, you pay. The cross of Christ shows God saying, you sin, I pay. And that is utterly unique. I want to go back just for a moment to Jesus' command regarding our sinful anger, the, the, the sinful motivations of our hearts. You know, we all have to acknowledge that... Um, we can't just tell our hearts not to become angry. It doesn't work that way. And, and that's a problem for us because we do grow angry at times, sinfully angry. And, and because of that, oftentimes we, uh, we disturb or even break relationships. And we're not very quick at healing these broken relationships. Dan Doriani, a professor at Covenant Seminary, puts it like this. Jesus' words exceed our capacity but there is good news. The same Jesus who issues these commands also blesses the poor in spirit, those who know that they cannot obey. The same Jesus who issues these commands gave his life as a ransom for disciples who cannot obey them. You and I are incapable from, of escaping from the harm that our sin brings into our lives. But Jesus will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves if we will just let him. 
I'll finish with this this morning, but you know, like you, I've been really troubled by some of the things going on in our country for some time now, and one of the things that uh, just breaks my heart seemingly over and over and over again is uh, the, the shootings that we have on the school campuses that are just, um, just heartbreaking. And yet sometimes out of those stories comes something that's very, very redemptive. Uh, you may have heard of uh, this very thing with a school teacher named Marissa Schimmler. She's from Ohio, teaching ninth and tenth grade students in a, in a middle school in, in there. And, um, and she is in a wheelchair because of uh, an illness, and she simply cannot get up out of her wheelchair uh, by herself. Well, another school shooting takes place, and uh, she gathers her students together, and, and, and she says to them, look, um, I want each of you to know that I care about you very, very deeply, and, um, uh, and I will do everything I can. If something happens here, I will do everything I can to protect you, but you need to know, as I, I can't do as much as an able-bodied person can to protect you, and so if something does happen here, uh, do not worry about me. You, if you have an opportunity to escape, you run. You take it. You go. Your safety is my number one concern. As soon as she finished talking, one of her students raised her hand and said, Miss Schimmler, uh, we've already discussed this. And if anything happens here, we're going to carry you with us. We have already decided we're taking you with us. You see, that's the assurance that you and I have if we belong to Jesus, an assurance that no other religion can give. Uh, we don't have what it takes to escape the harm that our sin has brought into our own lives. But Jesus does, and he will carry you. He will take you with him. Would you pray with me? Father, it can seem awfully arrogant for us to stand and say this is the only true religion, but um, there's just nothing that comes close to a Savior who would give his life for his followers. There's just nothing quite like that anywhere else in any other religion, and so we uh, we say this, we say there's only one true religion, but we do so humbly recognizing that uh, the only reason, there's only one reason that we are members of your church, members of the body of Christ. It is because you pursued us, you came after us, you won us to yourself, and then uh, you gave yourself for us. And so, Father, may we live with both the excitement of knowing uh, that we are yours, and because of that, we are safe no matter what happens. At the same time, may we look at those uh, who are caught up in other religions with great humility and yet wisdom and compassion as Jesus has looked at us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.